0: Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, please say hello to someone you don't know while you have a seat. In middle school. I'm, voting. I'm voting for those theater seats that recline. You know those? Good job. Good job. Thanks. Good morning. Glad you're with us today. I'm actually super excited uh, you're with us today. Uh, We're going to jump in a conversation that we started two weeks ago. First, I just want to thank Ben and Kim for holding it down last week for me. They did a great job. Yes, they did great. And um, I need to say again, as we get into these waters, that if I say anything that smells like wisdom, came from a pastor uh, named Tim Keller from his sermons and books. I need to make that clear. Not that smart. I just listen when smart people talk. Um, so let me start this conversation, or well, three weeks in, start it, with a quote from Tim Keller talking about marriage today. I'm tired of listening to sentimental, slurpy talks on marriage during weddings and in Sunday school and in sermons. They have about as much depth and reality to them as a Hallmark card. The fact is, marriage is many things. In fact, it's everything except slurpy and sentimental. Marriage is glorious. It's a burning strength and joy. Marriage is hard. It's blood. It's sweat. It's tears. It's defeat. It's victories. It's almost everything except sweet. Couldn't agree more with my buddy here, Mr. Keller, who passed away not too long ago. The depth and power of marriage, or as he says, the burning strength, has been trivialized, belittled, made a poor reflection of what God intended it to be to us and communicate through us and to us. And today, we're really just starting a conversation, guys. Um, so why talk about marriage? Not everyone in here is married, obviously. Well, it's a relationship, um, and it's not at all a stretch to say it's one of the most important defining relationships of your life if you should get married one day. If you're not married now, you might be married someday, or maybe you have been married in the past. And so much of the Bible is concerning Relationships. Um, Two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you just take that, then half of what we're supposed to be working with here is about human-to-human relationships. So what we're exploring is what does God have to say about the most intimate, most personal, most significant relationship known to humanity. Uh, Week one, we just tried to put a, uh, I tried to point out the significance of marriage. And that in all places and at all times, this relationship between a man and a woman has been essential for human flourishing. Uh, Many societies in history have worshipped this relationship, the act of procreation, the mystery of romance. Y'all, this relationship between man and woman is ingrained in the dreams of humanity the world over. Like what movie isn't about love, right? And what we're exploring is if God is the engineer, if he designs humanity, well, the engineer gets to decide how the machine runs and what it runs on. So that's the question. What makes this relationship work? What causes it to break down? If he says, you got to put gas in the tank, and we say, you know, I'm going to put maple syrup in there and see how it goes, we should expect things not to go well, right? And, of course, that's what we find in the world today, marriages, relationships, not going well. So today we sit with the essence of this relationship. What is the nature of marriage? How is it distinct from other relationships? What is it? What are you getting yourself into? Or what have you gotten yourself into? And I love it because in this room, we have uh, single people. We have just married people. We have uh, people uh, that have just been married or about to get married or been married a long time. And it's great. So what's this thing that a lot of us are participating in? What's the essence of it? What we read in Genesis 2 uh, is at the very beginning, God said, "...a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast." That word, hold fast, means cleave, cling to. Both Hebrew and Greek, in this passage, it's also in Ephesians 5 quoted, um, both mean uh, literally to glue together. It's something uh, translated from Hebrew, it's um, to pursue closely, to bind yourself to someone or something. Um, What's that mean? Well, that means it's language of permanence. It's language of undying faithfulness. It's language of always and forever. It's language that communicates a kind of ultimate exclusivity and priority. In fact, over and over in the Old Testament, God's people are told to do this thing to God, to hold fast to him, cling to him, glue themselves to him, pursue him closely, which means this word, hold fast, is word of—it's co- a covenant word. It's a covenant. What's... It's covenantal. What's a covenant in the Bible? The Bible's full of covenants, y'all. What's a covenant? Well, in the Bible, a covenant is a public, legal, binding promise. It's basically, marriage is a, is a promise. In the Old Testament, um, you'd see them um, in co- when, ha- when covenant happens in the Old Testament. You have this instance in Genesis 15 um, where animals are split in half. And then actually in Genesis 15, typically both parties would walk through the in-half animals. In Genesis 15, God knocks Abraham out because he knows he's not going to remain faithful, and God himself walks through by himself. It's fascinating. Um, Most of the times, both couples would walk through as if to say, if I break faithfulness to this covenant, may it be done to me as these animals. I am in total favor of bringing this back. If I officiate a wedding, (laughs) I will... We got, we got hunters in here, right? Like, no one would ever forget your marriage ceremony, right? They're sitting next to half of a deer. I mean, they're, they're going to need therapy. They're going to need therapy now. Uh, but it communicates something to us, doesn't it? What's this blood about? I mean, it's so bloody, right? Well, God might be trying to tell us something about the nature of covenant. It's something so serious. It's so serious in the Bible. It's not, it's not flippant. God expects you To be a person of your word. To the point that he says, you know what? When you break your word, it does violence to the community around you. God's trying to tell you that that when it comes to being a person of your word, when you break it, when when you take it flippantly, when you don't take it seriously, it does violence to the relationships closest to you. Right? I think we should bring it back. I'm just kidding. But at its root, at its simplest form, Christian marriage is a public legal promise between the sexes of exclusivity, intimacy, and priority. In marriage, you leave your current family and you permanently glue yourself to another person and now create an entirely new entity. And this relationship now between man and woman, this love relationship, now takes priority over every other relationship It's promising exclusivity, it's promising vulnerability, intimacy, and it's promising priority. But at its root, it's just a promise. Now, is this any different than our idea of marriage in our society today? I don't know. I mean, you might could say, well, hey, I mean, we all would say that marriage is a promise, and we'd get together, and I went to a wedding yesterday, and they did this. They made a promise in front of everyone. It was a legal, binding promise. Well, first, I'd like to show you, um, actually, uh, this approach is radically different than how we think of marriage today, and most people would agree, married, a Christian or not, that we're making a promise, right? We're making a promise. Everyone say that. And then most people would say, well, what's, a, what's it a promise to? Well, they'd say this. It's a promise to love. okay. What's that? (laughs) How do you know if you love someone? Isn't there a song about that? How does she know we love you? know that one? Enchanted? Okay. Um, How do you know if you love someone? Well, most of us would define love, would define and establish what we love by the feelings we receive from that thing. That's how we define love today, right? So that, to answer the question, do I love that? Do I love this person? Well, we answer that question by asking another question. How do they make me feel? So this made me feel great. Therefore, I must love this thing. Um, y'all, love is a trash drawer word in English. It means everything. and means nothing, therefore, all right? Dude, I love tacos, I love snowboarding. Oh, and I love my wife. Oh yeah, and I love my kids too. Uh, So you feel the same way about a taco as you do your wife? Yes. I love them all. Okay. Well, that can't be true. So we got to figure this out. What are you looking to to figure out if you love something or someone? How do you know that it's love? How do you know? How do I know that I love tacos? Well, it's a siesta in my mouth. Makes. Makes my tum-tum feel yum-yum. Makes me feel good. I love tacos. How do you know you love snowboarding? Well, it makes me feel free and the speed, and I'm hanging out with friends, and I'm in God's creation, and it's beautiful, and I love it, and it just makes me feel wonderful and free like a penguin. How do you know, how do you, know you love your spouse? Well, they make me feel good. They give me warm fuzzies. Okay. Uh, if you're not married, how do you know or how would you know or, or how could you know that you love someone exclusively, intimately, permanently? How could you know? Well, If you're, if you're going to say, if I'm going to marry this person, what am I looking for? Well, they give me butterflies in my, in my tummy, right? If your grid for love is the way it makes you feel, You will be sorely disappointed. And I'm not sure if your marriage can last for the long haul. Today, y'all, marriage is no longer approached on the basis of promise. What is promise? Promise is what you are willing to give. That's a promise. I promise too. Today, marriage is about approached on the basis of consumeristic fulfillment of self. What will I get? That is how we approach marriage. Now, someone might say, no, 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 marriage is a promise. Yeah, but how are you getting into that? How are you approaching it? What are you asking to ask if you're going to enter into that marriage? You're making a deal. You're saying, is this person beautiful? Do they make me feel good? And if they do, I make a deal. I do a cost analysis, a cost-benefit analysis. Will I have to put in more to this person than I get back? Y'all, that's consumeristic self-fulfillment. You're asking the wrong question. Promise, y'all, means obligation, Promise means self-restraint. It means habitual self-disciplining. If you actually listen to the marriage vows, one of the things you're promising is to limit yourself. You are saying to you and you alone, no one else, the, the essence, one of the essences of marriage is that you are limiting yourself to that person, right? It's, a, it's totally out of step with our society, y'all, of our, of our society's understanding of what fulfills you. Society says self-fulfillment really comes with complete and unrestrained self-indulgence. You want to live? Like, really live? Just say yes to everything. Say yes to everything, no matter what. Just do what feels right. Follow your heart. Live your truth. This is the air we breathe, Right? Don't, don't let anyone limit you. Don't let anyone cause you to say, oh, I shouldn't do that. No, 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 that's, don't, no, you do you, bro. All right, it's the air we breathe. Got excited there. Let me rein it back in a little bit. <laughs> Our society says you will be happy if you remove limitation and self-restraint. The Bible says that's not the way to self-fulfillment. That's the way to self-destruction. And look at me, no relationship can endure that. If your definition of happiness is in fulfillment of self, is complete, just do whatever you want, no relationship can endure that. No relationship can, right? If the essence of marriage is covenant, if it's promise, then we are not talking about what you will get. We're talking about what you're willing to give. Therefore, if we go back to the question... How do you know you love your spouse? How is it seen? How is it displayed? Well, you know you love someone by, because of what you are willing to sacrifice for them. Hmm. Now, uh, you know this with your kids, if you have kids. You will, when you have kids or if you've had kids, you will instinctually love them despite the fact that they add nothing to your life for like a year. Right? Right? <laughs> They will spit on you. They'll poop on you, right? And what do you do? What do you do? You give and you give and you give and you give. And then like a year in, maybe like they smile, right? And then, and then wow, that's great, right? If my spouse was doing any of that kind of stuff, like, we'd mm going to spit on me, right? Right? Keller points out we love our children with covenant love because we can't help it. We love our spouse with consumeristic love. Consumeristic love. Look at me. You've been discipled, deeply discipled, in a consumeristic fulfillment of self as the highest form of living. That to live fully, you need to consume fully. You need to uh, indulge yourself, right? Um, Let me give you, let's help with what we're talking about here. I have a consumeristic relationship with Starbucks. I don't mind it. It's great. They know me. I know them but if they give me one more cup of lukewarm coffee, I'm out. I'm out. Hello, Dunkin' Donuts. Let's go. Right? In that arrangement, if I don't feel, stay with me. I know it's, let's giggle. It's fine. If I don't feel like my needs are being met, or if I think someone else could meet my needs better, no hard feelings, I'm out. That's a consumeristic relationship. And it is exactly how most people think about marriage. And it's why marriages can feel disturbingly unstable and unsafe. We want two-year renewable contracts so we can have an out, just in case. We are basing it on the idea that love is a feeling, and therefore, in the modern West, the essence of marriage is really based on romance, romance, romance. Emotional gratification, sexual attraction, self-fulfillment. We start with romance, and we think maybe friendship will work out. We don't start with friendship and say maybe romance will work out. We, do, we flipped it, you see. We start with romance. So you go in a room, and if you're picking out spouses, you immediately rule out 15. You find the three that are your body type, and they're the kind of face that you like, and you go up to them, and you say, what's up? Let's start with romance, and let's see if this person could be a friend. Instead of starting with friends who we know and love, that maybe romance can bleed into, y'all. Uh, it, and Therefore, you see what we're doing. We've shifted the whole emphasis of marriage. It is no longer an us marriage, it's a me marriage in the modern mind. Marriage is not about us, it's about me. We marry someone because we think they will add to our life. We do a benefit-cost analysis, right? And if it works out, we go for it. The question we ask is, will I get more out of it than I put into this? And and we use the things like their body type, or do they have bad habits? Or will they enhance my life socially, or emotionally, or sexually? And if so, okay, we can get married. In other words, we choose our spouse based on what we can get, not based on promise. How is that a promise? How are you going to promise That you're, what, what? I promise that you will always make me feel amazing. That's not a promise, y'all. That's a demand. A really, really self centered demand, right? And it gets to the heart of how our society thinks about marriage and judges just about participation in anything. Our grid of participation, (laughs) spicy today, our grid of participation isn't. Is it true? Is it right? Is it noble? Will it help and serve others? Our grid of participation in just about anything is, will I get more out of it than I put into it? Because we've been discipled, right? I used to be a wedding photographer, and one time I heard this vow um, before these people and everything at the marriage ceremony, and basically it was that I'll do this and I'll do this, and it's the normal stuff. And at the end, they capped it off with blah, 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 blah. I will be committed as long as love lasts. What does that mean? <laughs> what, what What do you mean? What, what they said was more than likely, I will be committed to you as long as I like you. That's what they meant. As long as you do, as long as you, and you know what? As long as you don't change. You know that one? How'd that work out 15 years into marriage? As long as you stay the same, as long as you fix the hair the way I like, as long as you do the dishes, as long as you don't get fat as long as you don't get depressed, as long as you don't struggle, as long as you don't lose your job. For most people, love means I will be committed to you as long as the cost-benefit analysis is in my favor. And that is not at all the biblical essence of marriage. Now listen, listen. Covenant relationship Relationship based on promise will have amazing, deep, robust benefits, way deeper than a consumeristic relationship, but, you, but we do not judge the relationship on what we receive. And we do not get into covenant relationship because we will receive. We get in and we judge it by what we are willing to give. I'm just telling you it's true, guys. It's true because at its roots, the wedding, uh, the marriage relationship is a promise. It's a promise. Think about the vows. Have you been to a wedding ceremony lately? Vows at wedding ceremonies, at least traditionally, um, say things like, I will love you no matter what, right? Sickness, blah, 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 right? Uh, Of course we expect to receive, but you don't promise to receive. (laughs) You didn't promise to receive. You promise to give if you're married. It's the opposite of consumerism, y'all. It's the opposite. What you promise in marriage is a permanent position of investing, caring, a giving to that person, right, and limiting yourself for their sake. It's the only way it works. You're not promising a feeling. You're promising an action. See, for modern people, love is like a ditch. You fall into it. It happens on accident. It seizes you, right? I'm sick with love. It's something that happens to you that we can't help. That's not, that's not love. That's a feeling, man. Look, 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 look. When you unintentionally lock eyes with that total hunk or babe at Starbucks and feel a weird feeling in your, st- you're not in love. Lord, have mercy. You're not in love. All right? It's not, that's not the thing that's holding the universe together. All right? It's butterflies in your tummy when you saw someone who had hazel eyes. All right? Pretty superficial understanding of love. If that's what we're promising when we get married, hey, say with me, say with me. If that's what we're promising, I'm gonna feel butterflies. It's like promising you're always gonna have a headache. You can't promise a feeling, it's absurd. When the Bible says love, it does not mean simply an emotion. It's not absent of emotion, but it's not based on emotion. It's not the same thing as emotion because it says things like this love your enemies. What does that mean? Does that mean feel warm fuzzies for people who hate you? I think a lot of people think that, and they're going, I'm never going to do that. I can't do that. It's horrible. How is that going to happen, right? No, it's not what it means, y'all. It means treat them a certain way. It means act towards them in a caring way. It means put their interest above your own. It doesn't mean feel warm fuzzies for them when you look at them. Love is not an emotion. The covenant of marriage is not to always feel in a certain way. Listen, Jesus did not look down from the cross and see us and say, yeah, they really turned me on. They're really my body type. I've done a cost-benefit analysis, and I think I'll get more than I give. In fact, he died for those who pierced him. In fact, they were inflicting pain on him when he expressed the depth of his love for us. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is that sentimental? No. But But that kind of love is the glory of marriage. It's not hallmark, it's visceral. It's blood and promise and power. That's love. And it's not measured by what he received, but by what he gave, which was full and complete sacrifice. Full and complete giving of himself, completely stripped naked and vulnerable, arms open wide. He opened himself completely to us not because he could get anything from us. Couldn't add to his value as as the savior of the world. Can't add to the value of God. He died for you out of his commitment to you. He loved you deeply, y'all. Love is not measured by what you receive but by what you are willing to give. He acted loving not because you were lovely, son. He acted loving because of his covenant of love to you, his commitment of love to you right? Though the hills be shaken and the mountains be removed, yet my steadfast covenant love will never be shaken. Y'all, it's his commitment to us outside of our beauty that makes his love powerful. Yeah? We talking here? The power of his love is in the strength of his commitment, not the strength of our beauty, or what we brought to the table. Therefore, when the Bible says love, it's talk it is talking about a commitment to the person regardless of your changing feelings or even the loveliness of that person at at any given time because I have horrible news for some of you. Some of you already know this. Some of this is going to shock you because they will change. You will change. Uh, This is basically the opposite of how we think about marriage today. Today, we think, if I can just find the right person who fulfills me, because we've made self-fulfillment the goal. Um, Do you know what this has done to marriage? When we make self-fulfillment the goal, it puts a tremendous amount of undue pressure on the marriage relationship. And it only heightens anxiety around marriage. And now, the stability of the relationship sits on the edge of a knife. What's the edge of that knife? Your shifting appetites and self-wishes. One Christian author writes, people get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. Therefore, when they find that they are not, this proves they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change. But let the thrills go, let it die away, and go on through that period of death. And it is a period of death into the greater but much more profound interest and happiness that follows in commitment, and you will find you're living in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your normal diet and try to prolong them them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker, fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned old person for the rest of your life. Keller says, The thrill that we call being in love is usually just an ego kick. I think that person's pretty, and they dig me. And it's enough to give you a rush for a little while, a couple weeks maybe. It can get you in the door, but it's not substantial or strong enough for the long haul. At some point in the marriage, you realize a decision has to be made. Will I continue to act caring and loving even when I look at my spouse and feel ugh in my heart? Listen, (laughs) if you've never looked at your spouse and felt ugh, you're barely in the game. If you've never looked at your spouse and felt disappointed or underwhelmed, you could still be in like. I'm not sure if you've even gone over into love yet. I think I was infatuated with my wife for the first two years of our marriage. I know you were bored, but now you're you're listening now. I remember the first time I was assaulted by the fact that she wasn't perfect. I was appalled, right? I was aghast. What? You're selfish, right? It was a horrible shock. It was horrible. I was throwing the flag of false advertising, right? <laughs> like you were supposed to be perfect in every what's going on, right? Who is this person, in fact? When we had our first kids, um, I'll, be, I'll be straight up honest with you, our marriage fell apart. We were fighting all night, like cats and dogs, communication broke. We weren't sleeping. Sleep deprivation is a form of torture, bro. All right? We were both massively insecure about how to be a parent. And, dude, nothing just like a, a guy can't say the words, I don't know how to do that, right? Like a guy can't say the words, I'm lost. He can't say the words, hey, I'm lost, can you give me directions? Much less can he say the words, I have no clue what we're doing as a parent, right? So, it's horrible. Five years in, all right? I was five five years married before I realized that my love for my wife cannot be based on feelings or her performance. I needed something stronger. And I realized I was an awesome husband when she was awesome. When she was doing everything right, I was a great husband, but she can't struggle. She's got to be perfect, you know, like me, you know? (laughs) And, of course, it's showing how immature my love was. And how did my love grow for my wife in this season? Through feelings? Through, you think, you think? You think it grew through like warm, fuzzy feelings when we're shouting at each other at 2 a.m. in the morning about whether to breastfeed or feed a bottle? That's how, you know, how did my love grow? No, dude, it grew through pain. It grew through struggle. It grew through sleepless nights. It grew through saying yes to her and no to everyone else. It grew through conflict and depression and saying yes to the promise I made over and over and over again when everything inside me said, this is not working. But if you're trying to fulfill yourself ultimately through that person, they can't struggle. They have to be perfect. You can't go through postpartum. What are you talking about, right? And look at me, no person can bear that weight. You will crush them under the weight of your own need of self-fulfillment. And many marriages have crashed and burned underneath unrealistic expectations of saying to them and not saying to them, fulfill me. In every single way, right? And I realized I did not love who she was. I loved who I thought she ought to be. And I had to understand in that moment, covenant for me meant giving her permission to struggle. And this is the word for some of you right now. You need to give your spouse permission to struggle. I had to say to my heart over and over again, right? I had to say yes to her, give her permission to struggle, even for for a a bad day. Okay, fine. A bad week, mm, a bad month, a bad year. If you're married, that's what you promised the nature of commitment. It's the nature of covenant. And it is the glory and the burning strength of marriage as well. Hmm? Dude, it's why we cry at marriage ceremonies. Because we promise something all of our hearts long for. Y'all, we're promising Eden. We're promising naked and unashamed. We're promising fully vulnerable and fully loved. Yoss, why we get weepy-eyed at ceremonies. These two young, beautiful, naive people promising something so powerful and majestic. They have no clue what it means, but we get weepy-eyed anyway, don't we? Because we're promising the kind of love that we really only see in God. It's really a God-like love. Listen to the vows. No man can love like that, right? We say I will love you in sickness or health, in poverty or wealth, no matter what, no matter what you may or may not give to me, I will love you. It's a public promise to be like God in how we love our spouse, and it melts our heart every time. Because deep inside of us, it's the kind of love we long for, and it's the kind of love that none of us can really give, All right? So what, did, let's wrap it up here. I'm, you were right. We're going long. All right. Now, what, when you said it, I was like, he's not wrong. Okay. Okay. What does it do in what does this, what does covenant do in relationship? What does this do to a relationship? I'll tell you what it's supposed to do. It ties your heart to the mast. Like Odysseus tied himself to the mast of the ship. Some of us don't like that image of marriage. Covenant ties your heart to the mast when our feelings and emotion go off, emotions go off the reserve. You remember Odysseus and the sirens? Yeah? Covenant, promise, ties your heart to that person so that you can sail through the sirens of temptation, anger, conflict, depression, and change, and come out the other side, the kind of person that we can only describe as Faithful. And the storms will come, the temptations will come, and you and your spouse will change. I am not the same man Allison married 16 years ago. Thank God, bless her heart, right? And she's not the same woman. I mean, she's always been perfect. She's just more perfect now. Um, it's, it's close. Covered my back on that one. Um, she's not here today, so. Um, Stanley Harawa says this. We're about to wrap, but oh, we're, we're closing it up, okay? Stanley Harawa says this. <clears throat> the challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. He goes on, The modern assumption on which our entire culture is based is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and if we look hard enough, we'll find that right person. This assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that you always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. And if we first marry the right person, just give them a while and he or she will change. Four, listen, marriage being the enormous thing that it is means that we are not the same person the moment we enter it. Isn't it bizarre? We find the right person, and then we think, I'm going to you know, marry this person because they're perfect as they are. In the moment you marry them, they change because now they're married to you. If you're banking... On the right person making the decision obvious and easy, beware. Because marriage is so significant, so wildly transformative, that as soon as you marry, you change. And then as soon as you have kids, you change again. And then when you lose a job or move, you change again. One writer noted, my, my wife's been married to five men, and all of them were me. Because we change. Because we change. Matt, take a little while. You got it, though. You got it. You got it. <laughs> we change, y'all. Wait, hey, let's grow up some. Let's grow up. We change. You're going to change. You, your options are change or die. <laughs> That's it. Therefore, if your love for your spouse is solely based on compatibility and self-fulfillment, you're not being realistic about life. When they inevit- and when they inevitably change, it's possible that the foundations of which you've built the whole thing on crumble underneath your feet. Biblical marriage, y'all, is stronger than that. It's stronger than our culture's definition of love and marriage. In fact, I would argue that our culture's definition of love and marriage marriage, is weak water compared to the rich wine of biblical covenantal marriage. So one more thing it does, then we'll get out of here. Covenant means this. Covenant means there's no back door, which is a part of the power of marriage. Now, all right, hold on. Everyone breathe. I know that brought up a lot, okay? Okay. Uh, No backdoor brings up a whole lot for a lot of people. The Bible does have grounds for divorce. It does. But the Bible uses the analogy of a body for marriage and therefore treats divorce like cutting off an extremity. Are there instances where losing an arm is necessary for, for survival? Yeah. But it's more like losing an arm, not changing roommates. And Jesus said the only reason Moses allowed for it because you have a hard, stubborn heart. It was allowed as a concession for the sinfulness of men and women. And it's like losing an arm. And if you've ever been through one, you know losing an arm might have been easier. All right? But the idea of no back door may, to some, sound too final. It adds anxiety to marriage, right? Like a what ifs. What if they change? What if they turn out to be selfish? What if he snores? They will. They are. He, if he doesn't now, he will later. Uh, <laughs> While, while no back door it may sound too final, the reality is it creates something. What does this create? It creates something that no other relationship creates in the same way. If you think about the promises you make at wedding ceremonies, if we actually follow through with those promises, what would that create in the other person? If you were cared for and cherished and loved, not based on them, not based on whether they had a job or were healthy or sick, if you actually loved someone based on promise, not on their performance, what would that create? It's obvious, y'all. It creates a bedrock of safety and vulnerability that's unique to marriage. Wrapping it up. Sorry, I know I'm going long today. had a lot to say. I'm only getting started. Um, Y'all, covenant, only covenant, creates the immense sense of safety and emotional security that we need to be fully known in a relationship. Even if I'm poor, even if I'm sick, even if I lose anything, they're going to love me and cherish me. Again, it's why we get weepy. That's the, the outcome of being loved like that is complete and total vulnerability. Listen, if you're afraid that he's going to run off, as soon as he figures out your feet smell like rancid tuna, you're, you're, you're never going to take your shoes off, right? On the one hand, you're promising a kind of vulnerability that's extremely dangerous. No secrets. They will know all the dirt on you. They're going to know all the blind spots and dirty bits. And on the other hand, it's promising to be loving and caring and compassionate, even when you see the dirty, dark side that every single one of us has. Naked and without shame is only possible within the framework of deep covenantal commitment. Only in covenant will we ever really let our hair down. And y'all, it takes years of marriage to, be, to get relationally and emotionally vulnerable, years. Can I say that again? It takes years of being married to, uh, here we go. <laughs> what sex represents in, you well, know, some time. It takes years to do emotionally and relationally. Sex represents full and complete vulnerability. Physical intimacy, you're completely seen, nothing is hidden. Complete, total, I mean, right, it's a symbol. No secrets, they see it all, okay? Marriage is deeper than bodily oneness. It's emotional, relational oneness. It's more robust, it's more comprehensive, more costly than just physical intimacy. Sex represents a deeper reality, which is relational and emotional nakedness. No secrets only known. And if we try to divorce the two, someone is being used. And it takes years of letting down defenses, years of pulling back layers before we are being truly honest sometimes, before we are truly naked and unashamed with one another. But the point is, no back door creates the only atmosphere where that can happen. Hmm? Therefore, marriages that are not based on covenant, not based on promise, will always drift into superficial dishonesty. Because I can't be fully known by that person. I can't be fully honest with that person. There's not the felt safety to let your hair down. Naked and unashamed is only possible in Eden. And Eden is only possible by receiving the love of God's forgiveness, right? Everything I've said today is only possible in spirit-filled, gospel-partaking people. Here's why. Unless we experience a love like this, we don't know how to give it. Trusting in God's covenantal love for us, it's assumed, y'all, in every New Testament passage where it addresses marriage. It assumes that people are trusting in the covenantal love of God's mercy. And today, if you feel overwhelmed by what you've gotten yourself into, if, if, you, if what I've laid out before you feels impossible, well, it is in your own strength. But what's impossible with men is possible with God. And only when we first say yes to the gospel, only when we say yes to God's love, God's love that's not resting on our performance or our beauty, only when we are fully known and fully loved by God do we stand a chance at having the resources, the emotional resources we need to have a kind of relationship with it, like that with another person. And you can take that to the bank. Let's pray.